Welcome to the Dr. Lori Morris podcast, where she interviews experts in health and science, sharing their expertise so you can live your healthiest life. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by Fit Vegan Coaching, the world's leading whole food plant-based body recomposition program for Gen X and baby boomers. Founded by Maxime, whose personal journey began after losing his ex-fiance to breast cancer, Fit Vegan Coaching is on a mission to disease-proof the world through the transformative power of plant-based eating and fitness. This program is the Rolls Royce of plant-based coaching, offering all-inclusive services, personalized plans, world-class accountability, lifelong support, and more. Say goodbye to the yo-yo dieting and embrace a lasting transformation that will rev up your metabolism even post-transformation. Ready to take charge of your health and vitality? Head over to fitvegan.ca, that's fitvegan.ca, and mention Dr. Lori for exclusive bonus savings when you sign up. Don't miss this opportunity to join the movement towards a healthier, fitter, and more vibrant you. This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by The Healing Kitchen, your path to vibrant health. Immerse yourself in the transformative program, guided by the combined expertise of myself, Dr. Lori Marbus, and Chef Brittany Giroudi, who has lost 70 pounds on a whole food plant-based diet. Here's what's in store for you. Virtual weekly sessions. Engage in an immersive 60-minute virtual session every single week, where you'll delve into the world of wholesome plant-based goodness right from your own kitchen. Cooking with Brittany the first half hour. Unleash your inner chef as you're captivated by Chef Brittany Giroudi's culinary mastery that will delight your taste buds and nourish your body. Medical Q&A with Dr. Lori the last half hour. Prioritize your well-being during the second half hour. I will personally address your medical inquiries, providing evidence-based insights and personalized advice, empowering you to make informed choices for your health. So join us on the Healing Kitchen to help you step into a healthier and most vibrant future. I'm Dr. Lori Marvis, and always I'm always honored to have an amazing guest. And this is definitely an amazing guest. And you guys really need to listen up. So if you've ever had any issues with sleep, this is the expert you need to be listening to, Dr. Audrey Wells. How are you today? I'm doing great. It's nice to see you. And, uh, you know, one thing that's been on my mind is uh, kind of when this podcast is going to be released in the dead of winter. Now, I'm Mm. up here in Minnesota, where it's very dark and you're down there in sunny California. So I'm already jealous of you, but it's really happy to connect you with you today. Well, um, you are welcome anytime I have space. <laughs> so Thanks. come on down. We have a vacation in, in, in the South Cal. <laughs> so Cal, I, I said it the wrong, South Cal. <laughs> um, I will, I'm sure I'll get notes of that. But, uh, but basically, yeah, we really want to understand. First of all, I love to ask doctors, why did you want to be a doctor? How did you get into this? And then specifically, how did you decide to become a sleep specialist? Because I think the story in and of itself is really always fascinating to people. But and then we can get into this amazing summit that you have coming up. Yeah, I, you know, this is a, a, a funny question because I feel like um, when a lot of docs are asked, how did you become a doctor? A common story is I've always wanted to do this ever since I was five. And that is not true for me. Um, In fact, I didn't go to medical school right after finishing my undergrad training. Uh, There's no doctors in my family. And I just kind of fell into it, ass backwards, as I like to say. You know, I, I was looking for something where I could make meaning of my life. I really wanted to contribute. I wanted to challenge myself. I wanted to, you know, be the very best person I could be. Um, So, you know, after undergrad, uh, I ended up moving to Boston. I worked at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute for a couple of years. And I, that's when I got to interface with medical doctors, physicians, and it opened up this possibility like, oh, maybe I could do that. And so I did, I I applied, Uh, I went to University of of, uh, Michigan Medical School Then I did more training in St. Louis at Washington University, did some training at University of New Mexico. And now I live here in Minnesota. Um, I'm currently boarded in pediatrics, in sleep medicine, and in obesity medicine. So it's been quite a journey. 
Well, I, that, that is really cool. Well, first of all, I'm from New Mexico, <clears throat> born and raised. And so the sunny state of New Mexico, great school. And then my daughter's in Boston. So I, I love that, that you have traveled those areas. But that is fascinating because you are really well, when you talk about your board certifications, all of those things are amazing, right? You have the the sleep medicine, you have also pediatrics, right? Because I think there's some things that we ignore when kids are little that we don't listen to. Like my son, for example, had his tonsils taken out when he was like four, he quit snoring and had this huge growth spurt, which I think we should talk about as well. Yeah. And then the, of course the obesity piece is such an important thing, but I also want to talk about, you know, we talked a little bit before we started about women's health and the perimenopause, menopause, there's so many factors of sleep. So let's get started. Like how do we even approach the subject of getting better sleep or how do you even start? You know, a lot of people um, come to me with the complaint, I just don't sleep well. And oftentimes it's been going on for years. And when you dig into that, um, the goal is to really find out what does that mean exactly? Is it trouble getting to sleep? Is it trouble staying asleep? Is it feeling tired during the day? Is it waking up gasping for breath or people are telling you that you snore? Are you kicking your legs at night? There's like all of these things that are possibilities. And part of my work is to really um, collaborate with a person to figure out what they're experiencing, where they're coming from, and how best to direct them in their pursuit of healthy sleep. You know, one thing I, I think is worth mentioning is that problems with sleep are pervasive in our society. Most people, two-thirds of Americans, don't get enough sleep, uh, not because necessarily they have a sleep disorder, but because they clip their sleep short on either end as we're kind of driven to meet our obligations and be productive. So there's this whole culture of sleep loss or sleep deprivation that exists even in addition to medical uh, disorders of sleep. So where to start? It's a good question because it's such a broad topic. And one of the things I like about sleep medicine is it addresses whole person health. And that's something that you and I share too, in addition to both coming from New Mexico originally. Um, you know, the, the way a person sleeps informs their physical health but it also informs your mental health. So in a lot of ways, it is a marker for the health of your body. And I, and I include the mind with that. Um, it's one of the reasons I enjoy practicing sleep and I'm certainly passionate about it as I hope you can tell. Mm, no, and I think it's really important. I think a lot of my conversation more recently has also been discussing how the mind and body shouldn't be considered a separate entity, right? It's kind of like, you would say, okay, your finger's in your palm and people go like, you mean your hand? And I'm like, well, yeah, but it's like your mind and body. It's like connected. It's so important, right? That sleep oh. aspect relating to your, your physical health, your mental health. So how do you determine what type of issue someone has and what would qualify as like, for example, a sleep disorder? Like how do you, where, where are these categories set? Um, in general, there are dozens of sleep disorders. Um, 92, I think, was the last I had checked in. But um, when, when I operate as a sleep medicine physician, the bread and butter of my practice are obstructive sleep apnea and insomnia. And it's very common for those two conditions to coexist and aggravate each other in the same person. So this is a bit of a tricky situation because, um, first of all, it's not rare. And second of all, it can affect the way a person goes through testing, um, sleep tests, whether it's in uh, the home or sleep testing in an outpatient or even a hospital setting. So those are the conditions I most commonly see. But I would say for 90% plus of people seeking care for sleep medicine, they also do well to have more education about what does healthy sleep even look like. And I like to put it into three buckets. One is sleep quantity. So you want at least seven hours as an adult. And typically if you're sleeping closer to nine hours, 
that's an indication that there may be something underlying a uh, problem with your sleep and you're compensating with oversleeping. So I like to see seven to eight hours about in terms of uh, quantity, your sleep quality needs to be good. That means that you have sufficient amounts of slow wave deep sleep. You have sufficient amounts of non-REM2 sleep and sufficient amounts of REM sleep or dream sleep. And there's absence of a sleep disorder, which affects your quality. And then the third piece is sleep timing. And this describes where your sleep window is in a 24 hour period, because we know that consistency is really important. So even if you got eight hours day after day, if you're going to sleep at 8 p.m. one night and then midnight the next night and then 10 p.m. and then midnight again, that is going to affect your sleep quality. So the timing piece needs to be consistent as well. So quality, quantity, and timing. So how do we know um, that number two, the quality piece? Um, curious, how do we, is this only can be done with, um, for example, an actual formal testing or can we utilize some type of wearable device at home? I would caution about the wearables. Um, they're not great at determining an issue with sleep quality. Now, I like them because it brings up sleep into our conversations. It brings it up into our awareness. I wear an aura ring and oh, it's charging right now. Um, but every morning I check it to see what the aura ring is telling me. And I use that information and I'll give you an example. What's true for me is that if I work out during the day, I notice I have increased amounts of slow wave deep sleep at night. And I know that because I've been looking at this for more than a year. If I don't work out, then that slow wave deep sleep is less and I see more awakenings or arousals. So there have been times during the day where I, where I say, I don't really feel like working out. And then I remember my sleep is going to be better if I do. And as a sleep medicine nerd, I, I oftentimes sort of use that leverage to my advantage. So it changes my behavior. And I like that. However, recently I tried out a, uh, a sleep test where I had the EEG sensors on my scalp and I slept overnight. So the EEG sensors and the muscle sensor objectively tell me when I'm asleep or awake and what sleep stage I'm in. So this is kind of the ultimate in sleep staging. And I compared that to my aura ring readout and the two were very different. And this is not uncommon. So the wearable devices currently are best at determining when you fell asleep at the beginning of the night, and when you woke up in the morning and everything in between is sort of an educated guess, maybe with an accuracy of 70% or so, okay? So this is a C minus grade. And I think over time, this is gonna get better. I think when people watch your YouTube channel five years from now, if they see us yammering on, they can laugh at how primitive the technology was, but it's getting better and it's bringing sleep up into the dialogue. So I'm gonna put my aura ring on before I forget. Um, and then in terms of testing, you know, most it's true that most people who go for a sleep evaluation get a test because otherwise there's no window into the world of sleep. It's a blind spot. Even the person who's affected with a, a sleep problem is unconscious as they're experiencing that problem. And so um, the sleep testing helps to uh, open up and look at that blind spot. In addition to that, people might have nighttime symptoms, they might have symptoms during the daytime, or it's not uncommon for me to get referrals from groups like cardiology, uh, treating people with atrial fibrillation, high blood pressure, heart failure, from diabetes specialists who are trying to help people manage their blood glucose or obesity medicine docs who want to rule out or make sure a person's sleep apnea is completely uh, tested or treated, I should say. 
So, you know, there's lots of interface with different specialties. There's lots of opportunities for symptoms and even reporting by the bed partner of observations during the night. All of this kind of goes into my evaluation and it ends up being a very comprehensive visit with a sleep doc. No, that sounds great. And so can we talk about maybe some of the top reasons people have insomnia, for example, let's say if they don't have the sleep apnea aspect of it, but mm -hmm. they're just having difficulty sleeping and what are the categories? And then maybe what are some of the most common prescriptions that you use? Not necessarily even medications, but maybe medications, but other things that might help people find a better sleep. Yeah. Insomnia is a really challenging condition, and over the past 20, 30 years, it's gone through different iterations to try to describe it and capture it, but in its simplest form, insomnia is trouble getting to sleep or trouble staying asleep, and it's causing a problem in your life. Um, that might be dissatisfaction with your sleep quality, it might be poorer function during the day, and if it's going on for more than three months, then you meet the criteria for chronic insomnia. It's thought that at least 10% of the population is dealing with chronic insomnia, so it's not rare. Um, there's a couple of different treatment approaches. One involves pills uh, or sometimes solutions or gummies. Um, those kind of fall into two buckets. One is over-the-counter and the other is prescribed medications. And then the preferred or the first-line treatment for insomnia is really cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is typically done with a person who's experienced in delivering this type of uh, therapy. Uh, I myself am experienced both as a physician and a coach. Um, and what happens is you take your beliefs about sleep, your habits, your attitudes, and your ways of thinking, and you reshape them into something that is more productive for your goal of sleep. So that changes the way you feel about sleep, the emotions that you're lying with as you're in the dark and the quiet of nighttime, and it changes your behaviors that support your sleep quality. And cognitive behavioral therapy is preferred because it's very nearly side effect free, but also it's the most durable uh, insomnia treatment there is, much more than pills. So with the CBT, are we talking about, so a typical CBT from my understanding is changing your thoughts or your interactions with your thoughts. So how does someone even begin that conversation is that this like talk therapy or their exercises is it meditation mindfulness like what exactly does that mean I think the first step is awareness so sometimes um, I get a lot of mileage out of pointing out to someone the scary bedtime story that they're telling themselves i.e. I don't sleep well, or I am an insomniac and I always will be. And that kind of self-talk keeps you stuck. You cannot make change with that type of internal dialogue. So the first step is being aware that that's going on. And then you start to move to remodeling your thought structure. And this is not sort of positive thinking, thought flipping. So, you know, if I go up to a person who's been struggling for insomnia for two decades and I say, just say that you can sleep, they're going to, they're going to brush me off and not give me a second thought. It's not that easy. What it is, is kind of working with people and giving them education about sleep so that they can set things up for success. Um, it's too complicated, personalized, and nuanced to, to really describe to you. But suffice it to say that um, oftentimes what I work on first, in addition to awareness, is just the belief that you can sleep better. That is an obstacle for a lot of folks, especially if they've kind of gone through a lot of the over-counter substances, a lot of the prescription medications, and they perceive that things are just not ever going to change. So I like to pull people into the idea that sleep is an inherent function of the human body, but you cannot pursue it. That's one of those things where the harder you try, the more evasive it becomes. So instead of pursuing it, 
you let it into. You have to set up your life in order to support your healthy sleep. Mm. Yeah. So I, I actually have spoken to patients, even with the belief system about other things like diabetes or obesity or whatever, because if they say I'm a diabetic, oh, my family had it. So I'm destined to get it. It's like mm -hmm. their intention has been set to make this happen. So like their belief sets up the behaviors that will probably lead to the destiny of what they've been saying. So that's this really is the self-fulfilling prophecy at work. You know, it's, <laughs> it really is. And, you know, sleep is a psychological experience, too. It's not just um, I don't want to medicalize it too much because, yeah, there's there's these medical conditions associated with sleep. And as a physician, you know, I'm, I'm well equipped to handle that. But I also want to point out that sleep is an emotional experience. And when when it's time for you to go to sleep at night, you do what I like to call a U-turn, a Y-O-U turn inward at night. And your relationship with yourself is therefore revealed. And if you have not taken good care of yourself, you tend to have trouble getting to sleep. This is where the monkey mind comes from. People ask me, can't you just give me something to shut my brain off? And that's a window into their psyche and to how the daytime activities are um, working against them. Um, waking up in the middle of the night is a big challenge, not being able to get back to sleep. And it sort of erodes your psychological health and it erodes your, your life quality, truly. So I think that working with people, coaching them, um, and kind of getting them to a place where, where they have better sleep and better functioning has been one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. Well, I, I always tell people there's two things that we can work on, your diet and your sleep, and then everything else seems to get better <laughs> magically, right? So movement gets better because you have more energy, you're eating better because you're getting better sleep. So Maybe it's foundationally actually sleep, but I do know that food can definitely help the sleep. So that's fantastic. Can you speak to us a little bit about the summit that you have coming up? And then we'll, I have some other questions more about sleep, but I really wanted to highlight your summit because I think it's a phenomenal uh, opportunity for people to learn even more about sleep. Yeah, this is something I'm really proud of. Um, so I am hosting an online uh, virtual summit with a company called Dr. Talks. The summit is called Sleep Deep, New Approaches at Beating Sleep Apnea and Insomnia. So these are the two big pillars of problems with sleep. And I've had the privilege to talk to and interview experts from not only sleep medicine, but obesity medicine, cardiology, dentistry, endocrinology, ENT. Um, I've talked to some lifestyle gurus and I've talked to people um, who are really driven to improve people's lives by helping them up-level their sleep. So it's done in a way that feels really um, with a lot of integrity to me because there's there's so many things out there that are, that are kind of gimmicky for sleep. I don't know if you've seen these, mm -hmm. these products. Um, and that's not what I'm about. I like to do things that are practical, <laughs> practical, actionable and evidence-based. So I really curated this expertise um, and this is gonna be on display during the seven days of my summit, which are February 6th through the 12th. And it's totally free for anyone who wants to sign up. And I'll give you the link so that people can go to the show notes and click on it. Yes, absolutely. So we'll have the links and then as far as um, turning back real quick to the conversation yard, so you guys definitely check out the summit. It's going to be well worth it. Um, I was interviewed as well, so I'm super That's excited right. to be a part of it. And yeah. um, if you could talk a little bit, because a lot of people will naturally go to the pharmacy, see what they can find over the counter. Is melatonin something good to use? If not, why? And if so, why? Yeah, this is a great question, and I love to spend some time talking about it because that seems to be a very common first move. Uh, if you're not sleeping, let's go see what's in the pharmacy. Um, so melatonin, there, there's kind of two sides to that coin. Um, the first thing I want to start out with, though, is that our bodies produce melatonin naturally. It comes from the pineal gland. 
And there is a big influencer on when and how much melatonin is secreted. And it has to do with this guy lately, you know, blue light from handheld electronic devices suppresses our own body's melatonin spike. So it's a little bit maniacal to use your cell phone at night while taking a melatonin supplement from the pharmacy. You know, those two things are, do not compute. Uh, it's kind of like driving with your foot on the gas and your foot on the brake at the same time. So, you know, for people who are seeking out melatonin as a potential sleep aid, just look at your screen habits and see what's going on there. Uh, another thing about melatonin is that the over-the-counter preparations uh, typically do not have oversight for quality, consistency, or purity. And this is true for many, many supplements. In fact, there's been a couple of large-scale um, science studies of over-the-counter melatonin preparations, which have found that for the amount of melatonin listed on the bottle, there may be anywhere from zero to 478% more than what the, the label says. This is a problem because not only do people take too much melatonin anytime they're six milligrams and above, but it, they may not even know what they're taking. There may be nothing in there. There may be 478% more in there. In the most recent study, they also found elements, uh, traces of CBD in the melatonin, and in the past they found serotonin. So these, these sort of contaminants make the picture more complicated. And some people have said to me, well, so what? CBD's for sleep too. But people give melatonin to their children. And I would really hate for those kids to be exposed to CBD. So caution with melatonin, um, there's a brand that I like, and I'm going to say it here. I'm not affiliated with them. I don't get any money for them. I just know that it's good stuff. It's pure encapsulations. They make a liquid preparation of melatonin. You put it under your tongue. You can uh, decide how much works for you. One milliliter equals 2.5 milligrams. You should not need more than that, period, if it's going to work. And you just hold it under your tongue for about a minute and then uh, see if there's an effect. So I'm, I'm a little bit plus minus about melatonin. Um, I'm not here to yuck anyone's yum. So some people really like it. Uh, but I think that, you know, there's, there's just a couple of caveats I would put on that. Um, people also ask me about things like magnesium and lavender and L-threonine and apigenin and all these things. Um, really scant data about these other types of supplements. And again, they are uh, sold over the counter, so very little supervision on the quality and uh, quantity of the preparations. So, you know, most of the time, if folks are healthy, they're not on a lot of other medications where there could be an interaction, I say try it, but do so deliberately. So that means you write down the symptoms that you're going to be monitoring, then you decide what you're going to take for your supplement. Better if it's a single ingredient preparation and not like something where the whole kitchen sink is in their sleep aid. And then you take it consistently for a week or two and sort of monitor those symptoms that you're hoping to change. If it gets better, great. And you're not having side effects, keep taking it. But if it doesn't get any better, just stop. Just stop spending money on it, stop spending time on it. Um, I think it's really important to have an end date for your sleep aid. Awesome. So are there any negative like side effects of taking the melatonin uh, hormonally or something else that we should be aware of? I think it's possible to overdo it for sure. And I've had people tell me that they have an over sedated effect the next day. So that's a problem. Uh, it's a problem if you drive or do anything that requires vigilance. And I think the contamination issue is very real. And so, you know, there's, there's the lore of someone taking supplements with CBD in it and then getting drug tested and coming up positive. Um, I mentioned the issue with kids, you know, you really don't want to put 
these substances on a developing brain. We simply don't know how that's affecting them. And melatonin is a hormone. So I would say enhance your own body's production of melatonin is the best way to go about things and to treat your sleep, sleep behaviorally instead of pharmacologically. That's really good points. And does, do you think taking the melatonin, because it is a hormone, would actually decrease your body's natural ability to create its own? So you're almost like feeding the monster, so to speak? I don't know of any studies that demonstrate that. Um, and so I think that's a theoretical risk, but there's so many confounding variables. I have a hard time saying definitively. What I will tell you is that uh, in some studies of atypically developing children, there have been reports of early puberty in those uh, kids taking melatonin. So, you know, there may be some hormonal overlap with the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. I think that that's not to be discounted. And, you know, anybody who is striving towards health, I think should always be very discerning about what they're putting in their body. Don't just take it willy nilly, like really be methodical about it. I like your approach that it's like a scientific experiment and that you're being very deliberate, setting your intention of what you want in a defined time and then stop it if not be. I have had patients and I'm sure you have as well. No kidding six pages of supplements and you're like, how much are you spending hundreds to thousands of dollars a month yeah. on and yeah. these supplements? And they're like, I don't know. I just thought I'd take it or, Oh, someone else said this, or oh, I saw this, you know, naturopath or whatever. Um, it's really concerning, <laughs> um, that, yeah. that we do that, but okay. Um, so fantastic. So as far as you know, we hear a lot about sleep hygiene. What are the really important things that we should be highlighting when we talk about sleep hygiene and getting ready for bed? I mean, because I, I like how you mentioned previously when I spoke to you um, regarding, you know, it starts in the morning, but what would you suggest for our folks? Yeah, the, the first piece that I want to put out is just a little bit of education. As human beings, we are most responsive to sunlight when it comes to being asleep and being awake. So sunlight is called the primary Zeitgeber. That's a German word for time giver. And it sets our internal biological clock, also known as the suprachiasmatic nucleus. We literally have receptors in the back of our retina meant to detect the full spectrum sunlight and inform our brain, which otherwise lives in the dark, right? In our skull box, that it's time to be awake or it's time to be asleep. So whenever you're looking at how to improve your sleep quality and your sleep timing, it starts with how you spend your day. And there seems to be, um, there seems to be this response to bright light when you first wake up in the morning. Now, again, I am in Minnesota, which is a very high latitude. And so it's not even light out at 7.30 a.m. And the light in the wintertime is impotent, okay? I just want to, like, whenever I look at the sun kind of pale through the clouds, it's so pathetic. So listen, guys, this is what I do. I have a light box here. It just looks like a little tablet device, and I'll show you. You turn it on and it's bright, right? This is my son's stim. I was going to say stimulator, simulator. <laughs> <laughs> kind of goes with the impotent thing, I guess. But I put this on in the morning as I'm doing work. And what is happening is it's signaling these receptors in the back of my retina and telling my brain it's time to be awake doesn't take long, maybe 20 minutes. I've also got these really cool um, blue light glasses. Anybody who's interested in getting on my Instagram can, can see this. They're very futuristic looking. Um, so this dose of light in the morning seems to set a timer that goes off 16 hours later that's going to signal sleep. Okay, so I, I like to look at it like a pendulum swing. So light in the morning means melatonin in the evening. Lots of physical activity during the day means rest and quiet at night. And then lots of social activity, meals, a, you know, a schedule where you're kind of being extroverted during the day 
means you do that Y-O-U turn, that U-turn at night. So the more contrast we can have between day and night, the better our weight quality is going to be and the better our sleep quality is going to be. Mm. So really looking at it as a pendulum. So we have this bright light in the morning. So as we're moving towards that U time, which I love that, what should we start doing to kind of disengage from all the activities that we were doing during the day? Disengage is the key word, right? You're, you're sort of leaving the day behind you and now you turn inward for the nighttime. There's some practices that help with this. So stress management is an active process. I think meditation can be key because it helps you to practice relaxing, to practice managing your mind. I think journaling is phenomenal as a stress management tool because you're getting out those thoughts that tend to bounce around in your head at night and go on a loop, right? And people who can't sleep well typically have thoughts that fall into three themes, not enough, not safe, or not congruent. And so when you journal, you get that out, you get that, you evacuate those thoughts and your brain and your heart feel seen and heard, and it's very calming. So I can't emphasize enough that journaling or even making a to-do list or doing any kind of um, purge of your internal stressors is really important. Uh, I mentioned physical activity, so that's gonna help your body relax at night. Sometimes I'll recommend to people that they do a body scan exercise, which is a type of meditation. And then you want to engage your parasympathetic nervous system. So this is rest and digest. You can do that with breathing. You can do that with uh, vagal stimulation. Gargling is a great way to do that or splashing cold water on your face. You know, all of these things are sort of aligning your vectors to point in the same direction, which is sleep. Now, offline, you and I were talking a little bit about the plight of the menopausal woman. And I want to tell you, um, you know, I, I sort of knew about this academically right up until last year. And so I am in the throes of menopause. And let me tell you, it's like uh, before I had kids and I was a pediatrician, I would like talk about kids in a certain way. And then after I had kids, I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and it's the same with menopause. All right. So right. I'm, I'm in menopause now and I had the hot flashes so much that I had to go and get a little bit of hormone uh, to squelch that down. Was it worth it? Yes, absolutely. And I would suggest that for anybody uh, who's having trouble, just a hormone, get a, a, a SSRI, get a little medication to bridge these next few years because sleep is that important, not just as a sleep nerd like myself, but also, you know, in terms of your daytime functioning, uh, it helps with brain fog. I think that um, this is an area where there's been a lot of fear and controversy in the past. Those doubts are settled. So not there's no blanket medical advice here, but I would really encourage people who, uh, women who are having trouble with hot flashes or nighttime awakenings to go and get that checked and fixed because it's entirely doable. Um, another thing that came up for me was cravings associated with weight gain. And I want to say that, you know, your approach with eating and sleeping is entirely relevant to our conversation because tired and hungry are connected. And if you're not sleeping well, you eat more and you crave more crap. So really shoring up your sleep quality and your sleep quantity is going to uh, give you some kind of insulation against weight gain as well. And that's one of my frustrations as a woman in menopause. But, you know, I, I just think that so far the, the people at the top uh, of sleep medicine advice have all been men. And I, I'm hoping to change that. Someday. <laughs> so thanks yeah. for asking, Lori. And no. you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So yes, I'm, 
I'm 53, I'll be 54 this year. And so uh, last year was also my entry point. But I, you know, if you look back over maybe three or four years, you might see some hints of some things occurring. But as far as like, you know, periods finally stop. But yeah, the, and I pride myself on eating well, exercising, being my, you know, doing everything lifestyle medicine speaks of. But I still suffered from some hot flashes, not super severe, but they're certainly better now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the conversation really needs to happen that it's okay to use medications. And I didn't really appreciate that, obviously, until you go through it. Like being a mom, like I totally get that. Mine my, my yeah. are older now, they're all grown. But when you, but going through the menopause, it really changed my thought processing on, wait a minute, <laughs> there's more to this than I was one educated and uh but it's interesting because if you go back to the studies the whi that was closed you know finished the women's health initiative uh study finished in 2002 when they re-looked at it and looked at the data and how it was misreported oh my heavens there's so much data indicating that um hormone therapy is not only helpful with quality of life during this transition it can actually be life longevity provoking right so we can actually see longevity if it's appropriately utilized in a certain time frame and certain types instead of you know using oral estrogen you can use patches which bypass that first hepatic round which decreases yeah. you know takes away the heart attack risk um all these things anyway so there's so many things <laughs> that i'm like all right i'm definitely jumping on this bandwagon because i think there's so many people like you and i our conversations earlier also about women are our people, right? So not that we're women, but like that seems to be who we attract as patients. I think it's a very important piece. And like I said, I agree with you. I don't get me wrong. I love our gurus who paved the way, but you know, women have a place here. We have a different experience and we can sympathize and understand what our patients are going through. I think to a greater degree than a man. I am a big fan of walking in my patient's shoes. Now, I'll tell you, um, I've tried every CPAP mask there is. I've been through <laughs> sleep studies and I've tried the sleep medications. I've tried the wake medications. I've had a tonsillectomy, not because I wanted to <laughs> walk a mile, but because I actually needed one. And I stopped short of other surgeries, but there's just something to be said about connecting with a patient on that personal level and letting them know, I get it and I see you and here's how it's gonna get better. Um, you know, the temperature fluctuations associated with menopause can- Cold too, hot yes, and cold. Yes, totally. And it's so frustrating because your body becomes foreign to you again and unpredictable. <laughs> and, and that's so unsettling. Um, And temperature is important for sleep as well. We we haven't touched on this, but I'll tell you that um, one of the signals for sleep, in addition to absence of light uh, or dim light at night, is a dip in your core body temperature at night. And so during a menopause transition, that becomes more unpredictable and contributes to that sleep fragmentation. Uh, and when I do sleep studies on menopausal women who are having a hot flash, the interesting thing is that when they're wearing the EEG, I see the sleep disturbance happen first, and then the temperature change, the hot flash happens. Yes. So it's not the other way around where you get a hot flash and it disturbs your sleep. It happens in the brain first. Yes. I was going to tell you this. So this is my own personal observation, granted, mm-hmm. anecdotal, but I was like, it was like I woke up right yeah. maybe, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds before yes. I even felt the hot flash. So it was like, I said, I think my brain is sensing what is occurring. Well, the brain is probably causing the hot flash, but that whole situation I was like, okay, that's, it's, it's a different way of looking at the hot flash. Like, ah, that's fascinating. So you're just yeah. literally confirmed with I was already yes. thinking you're very oh. observant um, because it's that's the way it happens it's a oh. it's a problem with the thermostat so to speak yeah. not a pro- problem with the heater and you know I, I think for that reason um you know it may be more accessible for women to treat that it it, it doesn't last I mean there there are an unfortunate number of women who end up having hot flashes for 10 years plus 
Um, but the average is about two, three years. And, you know, if you can kind of conceptualize this intervention with a hormone or, or an SSRI, or now there's this new medication called uh, Vioza, mm-hmm. um, if you can conceptualize just doing it to bridge this this time in your life, I think that makes it more palatable. But I just really want to support anyone out there who's questioning whether it's worth it or whether it's enough. The answer is yes, it is. Go get that taken care of and you will feel so much better. Yeah. But I also think too, that we can even speak to the other symptoms of menopause outside of hot flashes. It also might be disturbing their sleep, like mood swings, uh, you know, the weight gain that may be caused to sleep apnea. I mean, there's so many things that, uh, you know, the brain fog and you're waking up yet worried about things. There's so many things that I think need to be addressed with menopause that can affect Mm -hmm. so many other areas. So yeah, I, that is (laughs) joint pain. Ooh, yeah. I was, I'm diving deep into this. I'm like joint pain. How fascinating. Um, so anytime I have women coming in to see and they're having these complaints, I'm like, there's a menopause checklist here. Let's go through it. And oh, good yeah. for you. Yeah. yeah they're really fascinating, fascinating, fascinating. Do you belong to the menopause, uh, North American menopause society? It's really helpful. I do. Yeah. And I, yeah. I do find it helpful, credible information, lots of yeah. information there, and also just very empowering their message. Mm, so yeah. I, I like that a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I'm working on uh, getting their certification piece for the menopause, oh, but they have a great position statement. They have great um, patient education uh, that I, I've been utilizing. So fantastic. Oh, that's great. Huh, yes, wonderful. So as far as um, I think we've touched on everything, you know, as far as lifestyle impacts and different things like the menopause, the summit, but, you know, can we speak a little bit about medications that might be prescribed for patients? Like, what are your go-tos? Ones do you kind of, you know, go along with caution? Like, how do you approach that when someone actually does maybe need that quote unquote bridge to help them get some kind of sleep? Yeah. So um, I mentioned this before, but I I really want to underscore it, which is anytime you're implementing a medication for sleep, there should be an exit plan because, you know, there are some newer medications for insomnia that probably don't have the long-term detriments associated with the medication like Ambien or its derivatives. But um, there, I don't think we have enough data to say that for sure yet. And a big limiting factor is that um, the newer insomnia medications are often not on the insurance company's formulary. So the out-of-pocket cost makes these meds unattainable for most people. So the, the most common prescribed sleep medications are those in the Z class of drugs, which are Ambien, extended release Ambien, um, and its cousins, um, Lunesta or Azopoclone, uh, Ambien's generic now, by the way. But um, these medications are benzodiazepine-like medications, and they have been shown over time to increase risk for things like dementia. So whenever I'm counseling somebody on reasons to improve their sleep, which is kind of like a habitual thing, I invite them to look at the way they want to spend the last 10 years of their life. Because without healthy sleep, what you do is erode your your health, and then that becomes apparent in the last 10 years of your life. Are you spending that in health or disease? So long-term use of Ambien is more associated with disease and even death. And when I prescribe it for people, um, I have a plan to stop. So we're going to come back, you're going to check in, we're going to see how your symptoms are doing. Um, If you aren't better, then we're going to get off of this. If you are better, then let's work on behavioral or uh, thought work to resolve the problem at its core. Other medications that I've seen a lot are trazodone. Um, Trazodone is... Uh, a tricyclic antidepressant, and typically it's the side effect of trazodone is sleepiness. So you're kind of using the side effect as the indication for the drug. And it turns out it's only really present at lower doses. So if somebody's coming to me on 200 milligrams of trazodone, I'm like, this isn't working for your sleep. 
but there does tend to be a pretty big placebo effect anytime you're taking a pill for sleep. So that's part of the reason why I don't get on my soapbox too much about supplements if they're not hurting you, because there's an idea that a sleeping pill is going to work and that placebo effect is valuable if there's not a detrimental side effect. Um, the benzodiazepine medications or anti-anxiety medications are not recommended for sleep anymore. Those have high potential for tolerance, high potential for addiction. Um, doxepin is one that I use sometimes that's uh, better for long-term uh, maintenance of sleep, sometimes um, for you know, people who are dealing with special circumstances like chronic disease. And any medication in an elder population should be really um, reduced in terms of dose, but also monitored very carefully because, um, you know, it's these medications work by sedating the brain. And so you put somebody at risk for falls and for different side effects. Um, dry mouth is one. So if you wake up in the middle of the night, your mouth is dry, you have to go get a drink, then you're at risk for fall and it just becomes a mess. So um, do I use prescribed sleep medications? Yes, I do, and with caution, and when I think it's appropriate after a very candid conversation with my patient. Um, there's a place for medications, uh, and a very common one is using a sleep aid, uh, a prescribed sleep medication, while somebody is in the acclimation phase of CPAP or another sleep apnea treatment um, to uh, to get rid of their sleep-related breathing disorder. And so I mentioned before the overlap between insomnia and sleep apnea. That's very helpful. And it's kind of addressing both birds uh, with one stone. You're kind of getting somebody over the hump of acclimating to their sleep apnea treatment and not aggravating their insomnia. Um, in general though, you know, for people who are just long-term insomniacs, I really like to get them into a cognitive behavioral therapy program, or they can do coaching with me. Um, I'm certified in CBTI, um, but the kind of coaching I do is called cognitive coaching, uh, which means that I focus a lot on the emotions that you're lying with, marinating in as you're trying to sleep, and how to resolve those. Um, an easy way to think about this is sometimes, you know, if a person is lying in bed, can't go back to sleep in the middle of the night, you know how you tend to have those ruminating thoughts. And the feeling associated with that is like regret or judgment or resentful or you're, you feel threatened or, you know, something negative is, is coupled with those ruminations. So I kind of help a person work through that and give them practical steps to break that cycle, which, you know, is, is really frustrating. Um, but yeah, there, there's a place for sleep aids for sure. And I hope in the future we can have some medications that are not only more effective for the long term, but also um, paid for in a better way so that more people can access them. Those are all really brilliant points. So the placebo effect kind of gets back to the CBT component. And I really like the um, discussion that you were hinting at, how that you help people work through these emotions that they're ruminating on, like these, the monkey chatter, or whatever thing you'd like to discuss <laughs> or yeah. label the voice that keeps talking in your head, be it regrets or anxiety or whatever. Can you talk a little bit about how you start that coaching component? Because I would love to send people to you um, and, you know, your direction who need help with that, because I think it's such an important piece. But can you kind of um, express what people can expect when they engage with this type of therapy? I think it's really powerful, actually, and it's much more satisfying to treat the root cause of the issue. And it's not just a cognitive piece. Um, so my approach is two ways. There's top down, which is the thoughts lead to feelings, lead to sleep or no sleep approach. But then there's the bottom up, and that's really getting at the parasympathetic nervous system, um, 
becoming aware of a trauma response or some sort of vigilance that's operating in the background, or even just not having the white space in your day to process your stress. I mean, that is a big deal nowadays. And so of course it's gonna bubble up at night in the dark and the quiet. So all of these things are highly personalized. And I always do um, like an intake with somebody so that they can tell me their story and then I can really start to figure out where they would need help. And then we see if it's a good match. Um, what I typically experience, so I have a couple of programs, but I typically um, make some recommendations that are very practical in addition to you know, weekly one hour sessions uh, that give somebody relief for their sleep even between two and four weeks. Now, this is not an overnight solution. Um, it's, a pro it's a long process, but these are tools that are gonna be applied for the rest of your life. And this is a much more sustainable approach than just sliding your prescription over to your pharmacist every month. So it's very personalized. There's improvement in the two to four week mark. And then I start talking more about the things that are competing with sleep. And oftentimes, especially for women, it's that the self-care piece is like number five, six, or 10 on their list of to-do items. And it's really funny because, especially for high-achieving women, I think high-achieving women are now onto the idea of self-love. You know, self-love says, I love you. Self-care says prove it. And if you don't follow through with the prove it, you're gonna be suffering for much longer than is necessary. So I don't know if I can tell you like in a nutshell what the big secret is, but I can tell you those things that bounce around in the middle of the night in your head, there's only three to five things. And so when you sort of take the time to become aware of what those things are, and there's just a handful, you start to understand, oh, I can fix this. And it's fabulous. No, I think that that's fantastic. So, oh, so it's almost like I want to go take a nap now. <laughs> like I feel just. That'll <laughs> <laughs> help you great. remember things better. Yes, yes, yes. Um, that's fantastic. No, I, it's such an important piece and the conversation that I think a lot of people just kind of, or doctors in particular, like for me as being primary care doc, you know, you, you we all hear the same things, get morning light, don't eat before bed, but there's so much more to it, like on the, the mental side of it and the spiritual side, like you're hinting to yeah. one of my um, <clears throat> questions that I'm, I'm starting to ask patients is what does your body, your mind, or your spirit need to heal itself? Mm -hmm. And it's really interesting because it's quite probing and uh, another question that gets people really um, amped up sometimes is what is your highest value? And I never thought that question would, would provoke such an, an emotional response, but it was, it's been quite intriguing um, to see that. But yeah, it's, I, you're, you're echoing everything that I've seen just from clinically speaking, like this, yeah. yeah, a lot going on there, but this I has been great. Everywhere I've practiced, um, I've been known for making people cry. And <laughs> <laughs> when I, I think that's, you know, it, it's, it's funny. And I, I, I would laugh about it with, you know, my medical assistants who would go into the room after me where, you know, when people were dabbing their eyes and then they would come out and say, Dr. Wells, you made another person cry. <laughs> but this is when we get to the real stuff, right? Yeah. This is this is the real humanity of it all. So I love it that you're asking, what is your best, top, most precious value? Mm -hmm. Because then it's like they understand, you know, you're sitting across from a person, not a medical diagnosis, not a collection of symptoms. You're sitting across from a person that you are helping on a human level. So kudos to you. Nice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thanks. Well, it really helps um, direct any, I would say guidance. I almost, I, as, as long as it's physicians, right? We're very, we were taught that here's your prescription pad. This is the indication for whatever procedure or intervention 
we never quite understood or were trained to do, at least I wasn't, the nuances of conversation and speaking to the patient where they really are, besides the motivational interviewing, but they didn't teach you the skills of what to do with once you're like, okay, someone's here. <laughs> what yeah. do I need to do to further this conversation and move them along? And because uh, I think there are some things that we can do from our end um, better as physicians always, not necessarily you in particular, I'm just saying in general as a practice and, and physicians, but, um, but I was really amazed that, you know, like I, I've also been known to provoke tears <laughs> with that. And uh, yeah, um, sometimes it's the moment I say, hi, how are you? And they're like, oh, Dr. Hart, you know, and then the tears <laughs> yeah. blood, it's like they were welling it up, waiting to release it in a safe space. <laughs> safe space. That's it. That's exactly yeah. right. So that's been great. So it sounds like you have your own safe harbor for many people. So that's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It, oh. You know, it, it's something that you cultivate. I, I agree. It's not, uh, I, I don't think it's something that you can put into a syllabus. Mm. And kind There's of soft skills for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I find it so valuable. I, mm. I think that it's one of the, um, you know, I, we started this conversation talking about why or how did I get into medicine and it's not something I expected to make these kinds of connections with mm -hmm. people but it's something that I enjoy immensely um, mm -hmm. I'm quite cerebral as a person and as I get older and as I get more life experiences I'm more weathered but I'm also I think more able to make the connections that sustain mm -hmm. this kind of patient doc relationship, right? And I really see it as collaborative. Mm. No, I agree. It's definitely collaborative. And, you know, I went to medical school uh, six years after I finished college and I had three kids already. And so oh it was interesting. Yeah. So when I went to medical school, as I'm approaching and going through medical school and seeing my, my classmates, which everyone, there was only one other mom in my class of like 180 people. And um, it was really interesting because I looked back and going, you know, this might be a little harder because I have three little humans running around. Uh, but at the same time, I think it made me a better uh, physician or doctor, medical student in training because I'd already had some life experience. But I so I so appreciate that weathering makes you more approachable. I was like, man, if I could only have had this knowledge and experience back then, <laughs> where would I be now? Um, but yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. I, I think that's that's a hundred percent true. So well, this has been an excellent conversation. And I know you've got a hard stop here, but thank you so much, Dr. Wells, for your time and expertise. And you guys, please, please, please go check out this summit. It's gonna be phenomenal. You're gonna walk away knowing so much more than you ever thought you would. And um, I can't wait to see how wonderful it goes. So thank you again, Dr. Wells. Pleasure to be here today. It's really great talking to you. <laughs>